0: Honestly, I mean, let's face it, what I think you're about, if I could put those in your mouth, is you want to let the world know that you've been thinking about these issues of change and change management for a long time, and that you're aware that it is absolutely fundamental, it's not being properly explored, but it is time to peel the plaster off and I hate to say poke around a bit and allow the boil is my sense of what you and your blog and what it is that you want to attract.
1: Today I speak to Dr Clifford Saunders. He is known for his work in applied neuroscience with large organizations to reprogram the strategic thinking of their executives and employees. In his private practice as a behavioral psychologist and cybernetician, he is known as the brain reprogramming doctor. He also likes to think that he is Terry Pratchett.
0: Greetings, this is Dr Clifford Saunders and you are listening to another Solid Gold podcast.
1: gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself there must be a better way to do this welcome to Unchange, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen and now from solid gold studios here's your host pietro dupisani good morning from Solid Gold Studios. Hello, how are you?
0: I'm very well. I'm lovely
1: to see you. <laughs> lovely to see you as well. Today I speak to Dr. Clifford Saunders. Welcome, Cliff, in the studio. It's so nice to see you again.
0: Thank you. Very great to be here, Patrick.
1: That's fantastic. You're normally based in Australia, but for some reason you're in Canada. What's going on?
0: Well, you know, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I believe some uh, For example, the mining industry will make large moves forward when they address the largest of all bottlenecks, which is between their ears, the belief systems that they have about how work needs to get done. And that work is based on a very old science, certainly in the East, but more commonly known in the West since about the 70s is neuroplasticity, the idea that the brain is very plastic, And what has in the past been extremely difficult to achieve in part has been due to the notion that the brain is rigid and fixed from the age of of birth. And essentially, you die off after about the age of 22, losing brain cells. The brain can't reconstruct itself. It's genetic and all of the rest of it hampers up our ability to change. And so once you begin to realize, wait a minute, this whole three-pounder liver that we're wearing, that is creating our experience of us this very minute, is those principles of neuroplasticity apply across all scales of human endeavor, both from the very large 50,000 individual employees in a large multinational company, right down to you and I, individual if we wish to change our approach to life, if we wish to improve, if we wish to test the boundaries of our fear response, those laws, those neuroplastic laws, if you like, scale across. And so we're here in Canada to record a series of introductory courses to neuroplasticity to codify it, if you like, a beginning, you know, 101, 201 and a 301. We, too, have our own studio. Same kind of thing with you and Gavin. It's a, it's a real great partnership where you get to put important information out, get it done, get it done once. So now we can use the power of the Internet to get these foundational ideas about ourselves out there. So that's why we're here in Canada.
1: <laughs> I work with a lot of Canadians as well. You're talking a lot about neuroplasticity and neuroscience yes. and a lot of that, but you didn't really study that. You didn't start off in neuroscience. So tell me okay. a little bit more about your studies yourself. What did you study and how did you actually end up in the neuroscience field?
0: That's an excellent question. If the audience could see, I would now be handing you a gold star. And uh, <laughs> I'm a big believer in having fun, all right? I mean, we're dead for a long time, and so... The way that I look at this whole reincarnation, if the Hindus have it, or an incarnation, if the Christians do, you don't want to waste it. The time doesn't come back. Uh, I'm a very good mimic. I'm, very, I'm, I'm funny. I'm naturally a very funny kid. I always have been very funny. And so initially I wanted to do theater, but it wasn't practical for me because I was born with a horrendous case of atopic dermatitis eczema, 65% covered from day one. And it really precluded me getting into theatre arts, you know. And, and unfortunately, the medical advice of those days was it's genetic, and Clifford has got it for the whole of his life. On with a horrendous case of eczema. When I hit puberty, that was it was just amplified. It was just miserable. And at the age of 19, a friend of mine suggested that I start yoga, Raja yoga, to see if I could do something at least to clean at least to relax more, because it was just horrendous. You, know, you don't even realize you're running a chronic panic attack. I had to do something, so I took my undergraduate in electrical engineering. And electrical engineering is a far cry from theater, as you can guess, and I railed at this whole thing. But I found out that I was pretty damn good at engineering. I got a first. And the company that I was working with, British Aircraft Corporation, for those of us that got firsts in, in our year, They offered us a master's in say applied psych. I took a master's in applied psych because they were interested in the human machine interface. How can we streamline the interface between a human with intentions and the machine to carry it out? So my master's is in applied psych. And the interesting thing here is when I'd finished my undergraduate, I now knew how information flows within healthy and unhealthy circuits. I worked with them. I debugged them. I tuned them. And now I've got the chance to actually work with whole humans. I and mean, we had to stick it in the EEG electrodes on, on patients' heads, if you like, for the uh, epilepsy clinic. And so now I got the chance to see information actually flowing within healthy and unhealthy brains. And now I'm putting two and two and together because now I'm saying maybe I wonder if something like that's happening with me, where I've got some circuit that's not working properly. My PhDs in cybernetics have always been interested in different cultures. That's, you know, I lived in Singapore as a kid. I had a fantastic time when I came out to South Africa. I love the world. I love to live all over the world. I think the world is amazing. It's just the most amazing. What a bit of luck. You know, the next nearest planet is 250 million light years away, and there's no bus for some time. So I just think this is an amazing planet. Along the way, as I was studying yoga, I was introduced to a fellow in the west coast of the states, who talked about dehypnosis. And when I say to him, What do you mean by dehypnosis? he would say, Well, Clifford, you've done a wonderful job of hypnotizing yourself into believing what it is you believe you believe. <laughs> you don't need more hypnosis, Clifford. You need to interrupt those hypnotic patterns. You need to dehypnotize yourself. Well, by the time I finished all of that, 25 years ago, I realized that my skin had got better and I no longer had it. And so what I've assembled over the years are many, many, many different techniques. Nowadays, we have them under the rubric of neuroplasticity, but they're techniques that allow our brains, which, by the way, listening to what I'm saying, the consequences that our (laughs) brains are capable of reprogramming themselves, reprogramming themselves while we sleep.
1: Yeah, you you are known as the brain reprogramming doctor. So why do you believe that people can reprogram their brains?
0: Well, I think the first thing about it is that I don't actually have to believe it anymore. I I just use myself as an example. I've got exquisite photographs of myself 30-something years ago, absolutely horrendous. So if I have been able to put into effect neuroplastic ideas that now have changed my responses. If I can do it, anyone can do it, first. The second thing is there's a huge literature. There's a wonderful literature. I don't know if you've read The Woman Who Changed Her Brain or The Brain's Way of Healing or The Brain That Changes Itself or any of these modern texts that give us an idea of, wow, it's actually not that complicated. There's
1: this wonderful story of the scientist who discovered the helix benzene ring He dreamt of a snake eating his tail and this led to the discovery of the benzene ring. His name was uh, August Kikule. Yes. And he had this dream and solved this very complex problem in his sleep. And I know that the last, the last time when we spoke to each other, um, you taught us this whole technique of asking your brain a question and, um, getting your brain to solve problems in their sleep. I think a lot of people who'd listen to this podcast would benefit from knowing how to do that. Could you okay. could you right. explain how that all works?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And for fifty nine ninety five dollars and four easy payments with operators, yeah, I can. Absolutely. <laughs> it, is, it is an ancient technique. Let me start there. This is not something that I came up with. Oh, let's see if we can do this. Now, these are the advantage of actually having spent a long time practicing Raja Yoga, Pranayama Yoga, the yogas, are that they have, they've known about the plasticity of the brain for 5,000 years. This yoga works because of it. (laughs) They've known this forever, right? It would have died out if it hadn't worked. And so what we do is we just realize, for a minute that in order for you to be able to understand what it is that I'm saying, it is your brain that is decoding the words, deriving the meaning, and then presenting them to you consciously. That's a trick. And it takes about 250 milliseconds from the moment, the instant of now, for you to become aware of the implications of what it is I'm saying. We don't normally see the 250 milliseconds that it's there. So what we want to do is we want to be respectful of this fact. It's not an it. Three pound of liver, as I like to call it. I do that just to see a little twist me on. But very respectfully, this is my brain. This is me. This is creating me. It's amazing. And it turns out to be very simple to be able to set up that communication pattern. The first thing is, is let it come to your mind that this is even possible. And that's, if you think about it, a gift that your brain will give you or not. If it occurs to you, you know, I think I'd like to talk to my brain. You're already on that bit of a path. The next thing you want to do is, is I like to anchor myself. If you're lying on bed, you can't do it with your feet. But if you're sitting on a chair, or as I'm doing at the minute, standing, Become aware of your feet and ground yourself. Grounding is important. So once you've grounded yourself, you now need to calm yourself. The quickest way of calming yourself that I know are three very long deep breaths where you pay attention to the exhale reflex. Okay? So let's do it together. Let's do it together. Okay. Okay? So just settle yourself down. That's it. Beautiful. And now we're just going to take three deep breaths. You know this routine. Let's do it. First deep breath. Next deep breath. Excellent Very good. And if you haven't already closed your eyes, please close them. And with your eyelids closed, just roll your eyes up to the top of your head till you feel a bit of eye strain. And relax your eyes. And keep your eyes closed. Now that's quite a ritual. I think I'd like to talk to my brain. Ground myself. Three deep breaths close my eyes, roll my eyes up to the top of my head till I feel a bit of eye strain, relax my eyes and keep my eyes closed. It can only mean one thing. And that is, you'd like to have a chat with your brain. So sometimes it's handy just to be there with yourself for a few minutes. In this case, it's not appropriate if you wanted to be talking to your brain at this moment, you would glance at some notes you've made, perhaps a sketch or a little model or a doodle, whatever it is, your brain knows because it's created the question for you to ask it to ask itself.
1: And then your brain solves it for you.
0: Yeah, especially if you do that at night. You'll take advantage of Kekulé's discovery that he could discover the first structural chemist, ladies and gentlemen, August Kekulé, Pick anything plastic you like in your environment, look at it for a moment, and realize if it had not been for his insights into the structure of chemistry, we wouldn't have plastics. Go one step further, pretend that he's your great, 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 great grand uncle, and you are part of the family that owns the intellectual property rights to plastics.
1: That's quite amazing, eh? <laughs>
0: It really is. <laughs> yeah, I so mean, yes, your brain can do all sorts of amazing stuff. The thing that usually gets in our way is a little voice that gets, yeah, but it won't work for me. That's just another pattern.
1: <laughs> so, so, I mean, you have a, a background in engineering, psychology, and cybernetics. Yes. Uh, how have you combined all of this knowledge to help people and their businesses?
0: The thing about our minds, the thing about our brains, is that they are multidimensional. We can look at the brain from a three a liver perspective, we can look at it from an electrical connectivity perspective, we can look at it from neurotransmitters, we could look at it from belief systems, we could look at it, is it getting from enough sunshine? There are hundreds and hundreds of dimensions around this idea of reality, of being alive, and of enjoying the experience as much as possible, getting out of our own way. So it makes sense to me, it's just logical, that you need to be a pretty good engineer. You need to be a pretty good psychologist. You need to understand systems and how they they are working, what they're striving for. You need to have an appreciation that, that a lot of the time we are as a culture hypnotized into believing things we believe we believe. And so when you combine that with art, remembering that really I'm an artist, you need to draw upon every single experience and hunch that you've got because each individual is going to be unique you're led into the puzzle of what, what do we do next? Supposing someone comes to you who, who is frightened that they're getting dementia. So what are some of the things that you can do to assuage the fear and then give them some things that would tune that portion of their brain up? What are some things you can do? What are some important books? I'm going to mention some books so the audience can dig in right away. The first book I would like your audience to get is The Woman Who Changed the Brain by Barbara A. Smith-Young. The book is based on some of Luria's work, the great Russian neurophysiologist, who discovered many of the structural components of the brain and how it gets put together. She proved for herself that if she drove traffic through neurological deficits she was born with, she could grow substrate which had never been there before. First of all, that's a miracle. And the second thing is she's able to write about it. The second book to read is The Brain's Way of Healing, Norman Deutsch's second book, which gives you case studies of how do you think about I mean, is dopamine important? Types of exercises important? Like what are the things that we can do? What are the things that people have done in real life to begin to modify their neurology so that they enjoy life more? So I think the necessary aspect of the answer is you do not want to get stuck into a methodology. This is how we think about it, take the pill and see me in four days. We want to be able to say we can rule nothing out, even what we might think of as really weird science, because we simply don't know.
1: Okay, I mean, that's that's really, really cool. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a bit of a break. Okay, it's time for our rapid-fire round. Do you prefer dogs or cats? Dogs tea or coffee
0: Ooh, coffee got to be made properly though I stuffed uh, with tea sorry
1: <laughs> um what's what's your next holiday destination
0: probably Spain could be Greece or maybe in Central America not sure
1: but anyway Spanish speaking is what you're saying
0: yes I want to learn Spanish
1: <laughs> okay um what is your favorite cartoon character and why
0: Ooh, favorite cartoon fantasy. Okay, the first thing that came into my mind is Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: wonderful. Uh, what was your best purchase of uh, something under a hundred dollars in the last year?
0: Ooh, I think a a high, a, a very very well engineered hand mixer. You know, the type that's got the little spinning thing at the end and you can make great, uh, you know, fantastic dishes, hummus and so on. And it, you know, you can really make great hummus if you have one of those. So that, I think mean, it was uh, $19.37, including VAT Canadian. And I tell you, I use it all the time.
1: Okay. Uh, who do you look up to most in life?
0: Ooh, that is such a great question. Anne-Marie, it's my, it's my partner, my wife.
1: Okay, great stuff.
0: She's, she's an absolute hero. She can do all sorts of stuff. She's constantly taking the ideas that necessarily I'm, I'm exposed to and then reformulating them and putting them back in a, in a way for me. Oh, that's a much better way of explaining that. Yes. And then, you know, we're able to have an adventure. We're on an adventure together. It's amazing. It's amazing. Have you read any of the works of Terry Pratchett? Yes, I
1: have. I love
0: Terry Pratchett. All right, so she and I are on a bus, either to or from Ankh-Morpork.
1: <laughs> you are old Sam. <laughs>
0: we, we met each other 27 years ago, and said, "Oh, do you mind if I take the seat?" No, on no, the please sit down. And so we've been on this crazy journey of pla- traveling the planet. And I'll tell you, you you really admire, I mean, you admire. I My mean, goodness, me, puts together the world and makes helps make it happen. So yeah, that was that's. You know, that's
1: yeah, that's just, it's people. just amazing you can, that you can share that with somebody, hey?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. it's huge, it's <laughs> yeah.
1: I was going to ask you about books, but you've already told me which books you'd recommend to anybody to read. But maybe what I should ask is, what book which is not in the neuroscience field would you recommend anybody to read?
0: Antifragile by Nicholas Taleb.
1: And uh, name one outstanding item on your bucket list.
0: Oh, oh learn Spanish, get it done. Be able to speak reasonably well in in Spanish, get understood in Spanish.
1: Well, you guys I mean, have... at,
0: a, at a business at a business level, at the moment I can ask for, you know, um, baños por favor. Uh, you know, I can.
1: Uh, Let's <laughs> where's the bathroom? In. Yeah, I can also ask for beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um dos <Yes. laughs> cervezas por favor, yeah. <laughs> which is also <laughs> to be very very
0: important. <laughs> 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 so I so I want to take it up so that I could actually have a. Not a hugely complicated business conversation, but a decent business conversation. I even get it across. That's what I want to get to.
1: That's the end of our rapid-fire round. I'm going to get back to the other questions that I had for you. Um, so let's talk about simulations and emulations. What's the difference? I mean, you would have done a lot of simulations in your engineering work, but then yes. you taught me about emulations, which is something yes. more that you'd use in your brain. So what, yes. is the, what is the difference and how would you use them to solve okay. problems?
0: Yeah. So just to paint the picture for the audience, because you're kind of a few steps ahead, let's start off with the idea of a simulation. So part of my education was working for British Aircraft Corporation uh, in the Guided Weapons Division. So I, I worked in uh, all sorts of GW tasks. One of the things that we, British Aircraft Corporation with the Ministry of Defense, very interested in and it's shortening the time to train someone to do something, especially something on a very expensive piece of equipment. You don't want people to go out and learn by doing on a great big tank. It's very inefficient. It breaks the tank. What you needed to do in that environment then is to create a simulation. And what you want to be doing is you want to be how well we're going to learn that task. Generally speaking, you want it uh, realistic up to a point beyond which you don't need to make it more realistic. Simulations tend to be single user environments or they tend to be played through as um you know, in terms of say, mind change, you run a simulation, you will run a series and you'll see how an instance plays out. So that's a simulation. Now, an emulation is different in some respects. You asked me a bit earlier who my favorite cartoon character is and out popped Popeye, my surprise. So we're able to recognize that Popeye is a character, even though we're never confused for a minute to think it's a real person. Nevertheless, we can learn a lot from from Popeye and Bluto and olive oil, can't we? Cartoon sketch. So I want you to think for a minute that an emulation is a cartoon sketch of, let's say, a business. But a cartoon sketch designed in such a way that many people can interact with that sketch at the same time. And that if we play some tricks and we scale it right, we can actually speed time up so that our brains get to see the cause-effect nature of the decisions that they're making almost in real time, sufficiently close for our brain to be able to make the connection to if I cut down the amount of money I spend in maintenance, my next quarter looks great and then I go out of business in the back end of the year. Now, as you all of your friends now to play with, say, an emulation of, let's say, And emulations can be of all sizes. It depends on what the non-negotiable business goal is, like where are we taking this? And that might take a little bit of time. It might be iterative. But assuming you know what your you know, steady profitability, regardless of gold price, between these two parameters, now you get your team to be able to play with this cartoon emulation sketch in real time and get more or less immediate feedback which then has the power, it it begins now immediately to affect the premotor cortex, the prefrontal, that part of our brains that contains our belief systems of what we must do to get things done. And so I hope that's not too wordy for you. They're both in the same category of learning environment, a simulation and an emulation. They're both training environments. One's generally one-on-one for a single type of task. An emulation is a broader, rougher sketch. It has a massive effect on the on belief systems.
1: You're the managing director for the Center for Applied Neuroscience. So, what yeah. types of challenges do you solve? And which industries have you worked before? And I think the last part of the question is: that, Are there any interesting case studies that you can share, which um, shows how you use applied neuroscience to to solve problems?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I've already mentioned that I started in R and D and guided weapons. And the apprenticeship that I took was a five year apprenticeship. And it meant when I wasn't at university, I was back in the factory in Stevenage. And our apprenticeship program required us graduate, or undergraduate engineers to travel to every single department for a work term and to understand what their problems were during that work term, become part of the team. And even though you're kind of junior, you're expected to come up with some workable solutions for whatever they were experiencing. By the time I had finished all that, I now had a taste for, and a big surprise to manufacturing. It, it's not considered fashionable. I wasn't in England in those days. Oh, my God, darling, he's got grease in his nails. Oh, no, that's almost as bad as sales. You know, this kind of stuff. But what I discovered was it's really interesting taking raw materials, doing some things to them, and then turning them into something super valuable. So when I moved from England to Canada, I started working for the telecommunications industry. Bell Canada and Northern Telecom had an R&D group called Bell Northern Research, and I got the chance to now take my knowledge in in engineering and psychology and begin to extend this idea of the human-machine interface, what is, what is happening here as a learning environment. And from there, I just thought, well, the sky's the limit. As I began to do work with more complex teams, I discovered you could develop different types of tools that would support those teams. One of them is called interpretive structural modeling, which is a way of taking very complex problems, breaking them into manageable chunks that a human short-term memory can take care of, and asking people to make judgments about them, getting the computer then to represent the group mental model back to the individual's. Well, that's a very general method. And I left Bell Northern Research in 1991 and I began to branch out on my own. So I've worked in in cost reduction where you've got large complex products and you need to get better margin out of them. Well, that's a perfect example for using neuroplasticity where you get very large multifunctional teams that don't normally get together across silo and now push them for two or three days in specific kinds of ways to find costs and architectures. And things that can be done to remove costs. So I worked on optical switching lines back in the early nineties and were able to help them get hundreds of millions of bucks out of the, out of the cost by getting them to think that they found the savings. I showed them how to squeeze their thinking to be able to do it from there. I moved into steel and there's a company now that's been bought by the by the French and now the French by the by the Indians called DeFasco and Dofasco De in its day was the most profitable and innovative uh, steel manufacturing companies in North America if not the world so they saw the things that I was doing and said would I come and help them think about their next generation what would what needs to happen next and at that time this is in the early 90s They'd gone through a very large downsizing and they'd gone from 15,000 to 7,500 people and their morale was in the, in the gutter. It was terrible. And I was brought in as part of the team. They did a tremendous amount of wonderful team building work and so on. And essentially my job was to work with the executive team and get them to think, okay, where is the steel industry going to next? they hadn't realized that they'd fall into a commodity trap because when they asked them, why do people buy steel from you? They said, well, it's price, delivery, and quality. So why do they drive, buy steel from your competitor over the road? That's price, delivery, and quality. What about US Steel? It's price, delivery, and quality. So if all of you are competing on price, delivery, and quality, you're bound to be driving yourselves out of business due to competitive convergence. What is the fourth invisible buyer criteria that isn't on the table and no one thinks about at the minute except for this PDQ. It's not going to be as important as PDQ, but it become a point of difference. And out of that discovery, they then discovered what I call the door in the wall. They discovered that the way that they had been looking at the problem looked as if you couldn't get through it. But as soon as you added this invisible component, well, what's the fourth buyer criteria? Suddenly it's like, well, wait a minute. There's lots of things we can do for the fourth buyer criteria. And what they did, just to finish the story, and it's a famous case study, They deployed into Toyota, Ford, Chrysler and all the other car manufacturers at their own expense, the top end metallurgists and engineers in the design team so that they knew in advance what chemistries they would need and already had the process working. You get that by squeezing your thinking.
1: With the rise of artificial intelligence and all of those things that are happening in our world at the moment... Do you yeah. think we're going to get to a point where machines are going to make all our decisions for us, or are we still going to be using our brains?
0: Oh, that's such a super question. Let's just talk a little bit about number and number theory. When we say the machine is thinking, it is following a series of algorithms that it has learned. So now I'm picking up a brain cap. The front part of the brain, the frontal lobe, is where we make decisions. A robot can make decisions. The side portion of our brain contains our temporal lobes where our hearing happens. That's very funny. Stop it. And a robot can hear and we're able to see. We have an occipital lobe and see things and a robot can see things, too. But there's one huge difference between a human and a robot, and that is the parietal lobe. We are capable of taking the bitstream, the data, because we are alive through some sort of magic we don't understand, and turn it into feelings. If we didn't feel our feelings, then we would be robots, and we would need to be frightened of the damn things taken over, because we'd have no point of difference. Robots can outthink us, decide us, hear us, and see us, but we outfeel them always, infinitely. And so from my perspective... Their tools, their friends, get on the same side of them. They have no intention. They don't have a life cycle. If you set it up in such a way that they now start to make your life miserable, pay attention to that. I mean, I will absolutely guarantee artificial intelligence will squeeze us, whether we like it or not, to the next stage of our, quote, evolution or involution. No doubt about it. But we're up for the challenge, and we are alive, and we feel Um, We're sort of
1: nearing the end of our hour together, but I'm going to ask you, um, um, in preparing for this podcast, is there any other message you'd like to get across to the audience and something you'd like to leave them with?
0: Yes, I did. Yes, there is. Absolutely. Absolutely. A little bit earlier, I took Petra, and I hope you tailgated, on this idea of talking to your brain. Now, this is not a theoretical thing. Let's ask ourselves, and those of you that are interested that would like my Society of Economic Geology paper on the use of neuroplasticity in mining from 2011, happy to send it to you. But during that experiment, the experimenters, the neuroscientists that were part of the team, business neuroscientists in the States, we were able to set up a rough and ready experiment to quantify the size of the neuroplastic effect, roughly speaking. And so what we discovered was we were able to set up some metrics, and this is where you need to be sitting down. Your brain has the capacity to reprogram itself, reconceptualize itself, reappraise itself, rewire itself, the equivalent of two years' worth of unique business experience within two days. That's the size of the effect. The fact that we don't utilize it hardly at all is irrelevant. The fact is our brains are very, very fluid. From this point forward, we can be assured that if we're not getting what we want, it's not to do with the inherent capacity of our brains to be able to change themselves. It has to be something like, I I don't know, our imagination or some other boundary condition we don't know about. But that's not going to be the asymptote. So I live this stuff every day. I know this stuff works. So when you asked me, how many sleep cycles ago did you ask me to do this, Petra, roughly?
1: Probably about a week ago, sir.
0: Okay, so seven sleep cycles ago. So the first thing I want the audience to realize is, I don't want you to take sleep for granted anymore. It is a hugely important thing. The English say fortnight for a reason. Once upon a time, we counted nights, not days. In the olden days, there were groups of people that realized the magic was happening at night. So the sleep cycle now becomes important. Then when Petra asked me, I then had, let's say, seven sleep cycles between then and now to ask my brain to dig through, find stuff, and make it just as kick-ass and interesting as I could possibly do every night. That's what I did.
1: Great stuff. So you've been preparing seven sleep cycles for this podcast. Correct. Excellent. Cool. So where, where can people find out more about you and your business?
0: Okay. Well, the first thing is that they can call me. <laughs> they can call me at, on plus one, six, five, one, four, four, seven, six, four, four, seven. They can also Skype me at Clifford Stewart Saunders. They can also email me at cliff at brain com. And if they want to type it all out, they can, they can contact me at clifford.saunders at the brain reprogramming doctor.com. And I really encourage you go to the website. Uh, Our website is www.thebrainreprogrammingdoctor.com. And that website, we've put a tremendous amount of information. There's videos, there's stories about the science, there's my story. There's different types of case studies of how we work with individuals, how we work with uh, professionals. And you'll get a sense from both of the websites that what we're really doing is we're pointing to the fact that the rules are now different. Brain science is going through its uber moment. And so we are going to see vast changes in consciousness as a consequence of things like Petra are doing.
1: Okay. And all of this information will also be available um, on the show notes for the show, which I'll tell people about at the end of the show. Super. Okay, great. Um, so that's it. So all I'm going to say, uh, (laughs) all I'm going to say now, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. Unless there's something else you really, really want to share. Um,
0: okay. Wait, wait. I do. I do have something. (laughs) uh, And that is this has been absolutely fantastic. And I've really enjoyed it with both of you. It's been really super fun. And I liked how it's freewheeled. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you.
1: Cliff, it's been wonderful having you in the studio. Thank you so much for agreeing, agreeing to be on this podcast.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks again.
1: You've been listening to the Unchanged Podcast. For show notes, go to solidgoldstudios.co.za forward slash unchange. Thanks for listening.